Hey guys, Gary here. Before we get to the show today, I wanted to highlight our sponsor, Sports Engine. Sports Engine is dedicated to making the life of a youth sports volunteer easier. Through their applications, people are able to save time on administrative tasks, allowing them more time to focus on developing their athletes. More than a million teams, leagues, and clubs use Sports Engine every day to run their websites, promote their programs, and to collect signups. They also offer an easy solution for getting uniforms delivered directly to their athletes' homes. It's called Sports Engine Gear, and you can check it out at sportsengine.com forward slash gear to get started. Great. Now, on to our show. You're listening to On The Whistle, the podcast that explores the impact that coaches, teachers, and mentors from youth sports organizations and schools have on young people's lives. Let's get into the show. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another yet additionally exciting edition of On The Whistle, where today um, we're visited by Andy Gresh. Andy Gresh is a New England Stallworth reporter who has also uh, been on the national scene with Sirius XM, uh, WFAN out of New York, ESPN radio. Um, But for New Englanders, uh, he was our drive-by guy for many years in the afternoon at uh, the sports hub in Boston and uh, in Providence with his radio partner, Scott Zolak. And uh, that's really where I got to know Andy and Andy was a college football player at URI and pivoted his career post-college into sports casting. So we're going to get a really interesting perspective on going from athlete to career journalist through sports. And so, Andy, welcome to the show. Super excited uh, to have you today. Uh, Gary, thank you. Very kind introduction. I'm uh, Your studio is very impressive. I must say that uh, you and your crew have put together a uh, um, some A-plus surroundings that I see you're sitting in. It's very yeah. impressive. Yeah, I don't know if you've seen it all, but, I mean, we've got gadgets and toys and garments. we got it all here. You're uh, you're completely merged out, which is fantastic. And uh, no, I'm happy to be here with you. This is, you know, it's interesting because for for me being on the radio constantly, it's pro sports and analysis. And it doesn't mean you're not aware of kind of what's going on around you really on the on the lower sports levels. It's just something that doesn't get talked about very much. So good on you to kind of, you know, get get some different perspectives of people as to how they're seeing what's going on at the lower levels yeah i appreciate that and and so what we love to explore in this show is the connection between mentorship young athlete and the fulfillment of that young child's potential through playing sports and we want to give voice to all the coaches and teachers and parent volunteers who spend you know tireless hours on the field or in the classroom supporting those young people as they come up through life And so to start the conversation with you, I'd love to dip backwards in time and explore the young Andy Gresh, the little Andy Gresh. So I read that uh, you grew up in rural Pennsylvania and your dad was a coal miner. Yeah, my uh, my pops worked in the coal mines for 20 years. I lived in a little town called Carmichael's, Pennsylvania. Uh, We moved there when I was like three. And uh, I think I played my first like peewee football game at I would say eight years old you know I had a friend who lived down the road who got me into little league and then it was you were kind of in the group and it was a part of what you did back in in rural western Pennsylvania because you know I mean to to put into perspective where I lived uh, to get to the nearest hospital, it was 22 miles away in Waynesburg, Pennsylvania. Like, I remember when my brother busted his head open as a kid and we had to, my dad driving like 100 miles an hour on this two-lane road to get to Waynesburg so that you could go get him stitched up. So for me, it was, you know, rural Western Pennsylvania, which is big football country. That's what you did. You know, when it's funny, Gary, when I first moved to Rhode Island, with my family, I was a sophomore in high school and I remember the football schedule came out for my junior year and my dad and I could not figure out why there were games on Saturdays because by God, where we grew up on Saturdays, it was college football and Penn state and all that. 
Um, so it was very, you know, it was a, a bit of a, a culture shock in terms of moving to New England from there. But, you know, I remember just getting into sports because of my friends. And the next thing I knew, you know, back when I played Gary and Pee Wee football, um, the weight limit was if you were under a certain weight, then you got to be a skill player. Otherwise, all of us Larjos got to play because as a 12 year old, I was six foot two and about 225 pounds. I at age 12. Yeah. At age 12. Wow. I, I, uh, in fact, so the Carmichael's mighty Mike's little league sort of football team, we had a guy, uh, who was from Hawaii who was 235 pounds at 12 years old. He went and did a bunch of wrestling stuff. Another one of my friends who got me into little league played at the university of Tulsa. So he was a large O at that time. And then we just had one kid who was 275 pounds forever. And even to this day, he still looks the same. He just lost all his hair. So we went to play brave West Virginia. No word of a lie, Gary. There's a real place called brave sure there West was. Virginia. And the field went uphill. <laughs> so uh, one of the field goal posts had toppled over and you had to go kick down the other end. So every kick was going the other way. I ran on the field for the kickoff. They were like, that kid's too big. We're pulling our kids. They said, if we, if you played the big kids, we're not going to play against you. So like we won 14, 13, because all of the, like, you know, 10 year olds had to play because the big kids were ruled out. But my, you know, my youth sports upbringing was very different because there was nothing else to do in my town. And, you know, this was long before concussions and weight limits and worried about kids really getting injured on a bigger level. How did you fall into football? Was it just based on the size or was there a burgeoning high school program that you were looking up to why football you know we had Dan Copen on a, earlier on he said I played basketball I played baseball and I played football I ended up being better at football but were you a multi-sport kid or were you just football only it's funny I, I was and I did the traditional you know football basketball baseball all the way up until 10th grade and then I started playing golf and I went to play baseball at Westerly High School. I moved in the middle of my sophomore year to Westerly, Rhode Island. And I remember there was a, a coach who was constantly on me for having my hat backwards, right? Like it was the end of the world with this guy in 19, it would have been 90, that I would wear my hat backwards as a first baseman. I got sick of it and I'm like, to heck with it. I'm going to go join the golf team because among the few friends I had at the time was this kid, John Ballantyne, who was a great golfer. And he said, come on, let's go play golf. And he got to play free all summer. Now you can't beat that. So I ended up eventually leaving basketball because I wanted to sort of lift weights and train for football. I always knew Gary wanted to play football. It was the most fun. And as an offensive lineman, I knew where I was going. So I felt like I could dominate people because I knew where the play was going to go. I hated playing defense because there's too much read and react. Tell me, give me the knowledge and let me go try to execute. That's what I was really into. So it just kind of happened organically. And look, by the time I was a senior in high school at Westerly, I was, you know, six foot five and 295 pounds. Yes, so big most, boy. Well, most teams tried to not line people up over me because we know in the state of Rhode Island, it's, it's, you know, it, there's a, there are some kids that are going to come out and go to college. And most of the kids are, that's the level that they're going to end up playing at. And it's their, you know, it's sort of their athletic fulfillment based on what is to be the journey of their life, so to speak. And for me, I was lucky to go to college and meet some people that are still great friends to this day. So for me, it was football all the way. I just loved it too much. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you played with Willie Edwards, correct? I did. So Willie Edwards was a teammate of mine at the University of Rhode Island. And of course, he went to go coach at Moses Brown. And actually, Gary, there's a couple of guys LeJean Jones was yeah, another sure. guy. These I, are so, great Rhode Island guys. I, and LJ, you know, he had a he had a sniff in the NFL. And I don't care whether you were there one day or a hundred days or a thousand days, you still made it to the league. And LJ was, you know, pretty he was a bad character. It, you could tell he was different playing at Rhode Island and at that level. You know, Cy Butler, who's up in Smithfield, I think it is right now. Cy was another one of my teammates who's now gotten into high school coaching. And, you know, 
know, I think for some of those guys, it was natural, you know, but I got to say, you know, like when, when Willie and I were at URI, there was always that Rhode Island connection there. And then I went on sort of my radio journey. And when I came back around, you know, my stepkids are at Moses Brown. And the next thing I know, my oldest is playing for Willie and, it was, it, it was amazing to reconnect with him. And he, he's such a good guy. He really cares about the kids. And one of my beefs or jokes on the radio was always, well, that guy's just coaching to be able to get the coach's jacket so he can get a dollar off his beer when he goes to the Elks club, because there are some, unfortunately some of those youth coaches that are out there. And then there are the guys like Willie Edwards who really truly care about the kids and finds a way to connect with them and, and those are special people that are impacting kids on a level that I don't think we can even comprehend yet. You know, I agree with you. And, and Willie was a guest on one of our earlier shows. And if you go back and listen to that episode, you learn about the fact that football and a high school teacher slash coach saved Willie's life. Mm -hmm. And he admits that or shares that with us on that show. And he said, this guy gave me a lifeline. I had no family. I was effectively homeless. I ended up living in his house because he could tell I had nowhere to go. And had it not had the structure and the background of the game of football so that they had this commonality to connect on, the world wouldn't know Willie Edwards. And as a result, your kids, my kids, wouldn't have had this wonderful experience of this very gentle giant who knows the game of football. He's a football mastermind as far as I'm concerned, but he has a caring side of him that uses a firm touch, but love and respect to tell a young athlete. And by the way, my daughter too, even though he didn't coach her, he was around the athletic department say, Hey, where are you going? What are you doing? What are you up to? I need to see you here. I need to see you there. That constant reach out and involvement. It inspired my children to have a sense of purpose, to feel like this guy's looking out for me. So if I screw up with him, that's going to roll up to my parents. I think I'm accountable, right? The yeah. introduction of accountability and all this wonderful stuff that you get from coaches. The, you know, it's funny. I think it's human nature almost to remember all those people who told you you can't as you grow up doing whatever it is in life. But the people that you really truly remember and you never, ever, ever forget about is that first person who told you you can. Yeah. And who told you you could early on, Andy? Uh, it's funny. It, 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 he was a crazy wacko Western Pennsylvania football coach. His name was Vic Lapkowitz. And I loved Vic because he, he, he used to, you know, every coach kind of has their word or whatever, whatever they hang. He created Jerobi. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it meant. I looked it up to make sure it's not offensive. I can't find anything on him, but he would just be like, stop acting like a bunch of Jerobis out there. And it made me laugh. But by the time I went from age eight to age 12, I'd really jumped physically. Mm. And I remember he pulled me aside and he was like, listen, you're going to be good. You got to lift. And you got to, you know, and he ran through all these things and he was like, you're one of the ones who can do it. And I mentioned my buddy Earl, Earl Chun, the Hawaiian dude, right? He's a tattoo artist over in Hawaii. He played college football too. He, he mentioned the guys that I'd mentioned. He kind of lumped us together and was like, you guys are the future of this football program here in Carmichael's. And it was like, you know, one of those things where you're like, oh my gosh, it's the whole hand-me-down, you know? Because in Western Pennsylvania, that was a big deal, whether you're playing sure. 5A or single A, it didn't really matter. And he was really the, you know, I very much, because of my personality, tend to remember the cants, but I remember the first cant in football and it was that guy, Vic Lapkowitz. I'll never forget it. He used to live up the hill from us and, you know, would yell at us if we were sledding in his yard or something like that. But he would also stand out there with a cup of coffee and yell, don't break your neck. So, you know, it was, he cared spot. about you. He did. He did. He was just a good dude. And he knew that there were, he knew that, you know, recognizing potential in someone, is uh, some people I think are reticent to say something because it's what if I'm wrong or I put the stamp of approval on someone and they make a mistake. We always worry about the other part. Whereas, you know, I've had 
people in my industry come to me and say, you were the first one who told me this. And it's now as I've gotten older, made me realize how much of an impression Vic made on me. Andy, uh, when you graduated college, how did you end up taking your love of sports and going into broadcast journalism. I know that you graduated with a degree in journalism from the University of Rhode Island after having, you know, a successful playing career there. But how did you go from brute to brilliant? Well, I ended up um, great play on words. Don't think I didn't catch that. Very good. <laughs> so in the uh, in the summer of 1995. I had reached out to WFAN in New York City to try to be an intern that summer, uh, the summer of 95. And I got the internship and then I they they sort of laid out how it would work. And I'm like, look, I'm just a guy on a scholarship. You know, if if I didn't get one, I wasn't going to college, you know, because my parents didn't have the, the, the money and they were straight up with me. So everything I had to do was kind of on my own on the whole. And I just couldn't afford to go down there twice a week and make it work. I said, but I said, I'm coming back and reapplying next year and I'm going to do what I need to do to make sure I can do the internship. If I do that, will you honor your end? And they said, absolutely. Those, those two guys, one's named Mark Chernoff, who is the head of sports programming at Entercom. And the other is Eric Spitz, who is a, a big executive at, at, um, at Sirius XM. That was the beginning of a 25 year relationship for me with those two gentlemen in their various jobs, much more Spitz than, than Chernoff. And, um, and they said, you're, you're an athlete. So we know you're were, we know you got your spot next year. And they knew that they could trust me and that I was going to do the work. And I did. And I saved money. And one of my best friends, Nelson Martinez, lived in Newark, New Jersey. And I had to drive back and forth to WFAN twice a week, you know, to the point to where I even wrecked a car on the way home once because um, I ran into some traffic cones or whatever. But in reality, when I banged the car in front of me, I looked up and I was looking down because I dozed off from because you're exhausted. I was, I was, but I was putting in the time. Yeah, it's hard. And it, it really grew from there, Gary. And then the score in Providence happened. You know, they went from old lady music to uh, sports talk. And I remember the people who would call the radio station and the program director and leave the, where are all of the old people to go and to get their music of their life and all that. And, and then the rest is history. It's just hard work and connecting with people and staying connected and really just grinding for 25 years. So you, you've given us a lot and I want to break some things down. Sure. Cause there's some really important elements that you touched on. I want to go to the commitment between those two guys in New York and you, and you said something. They said to me, I'm paraphrasing what I just heard. You're an athlete. Yep. So one, you know what it means to have a spot. And I think they're pretty much saying, we're going to trust you to do what you have to do to get back here. Mm -hmm. I am wrestling emotionally with my middle child right now, who uh, is a lacrosse player, he was um, all state in Rhode Island and he picked it up again in college at Northeastern in uh, Boston. And because of COVID the season ended and I said, buddy, you got to get back and you got to rejoin that team. And he's like, dad, I don't know. You know? And I said, listen, there's a huge attraction between executives and job hirers and their appreciation of performance athletes. When, and, and by the way, I have it here at Squad Locker, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you look across, <clears throat> particularly in the sales organization or the operations team, when you tell an athlete, here's how far you got to jump. This is when I want you to jump. There's such an understanding that I know by hook or by crook, that young man or that young woman is going to do everything they can to fulfill their obligation to the destination I've given them because they've been coached. They've worked out on their own. They've had to develop their own workarounds, their own discipline. And when they disappoint people, they take feedback in such a way that it's not personal. It's like, hey, look, son, you didn't get there and it's not enough. They don't cry. Sometimes they cry. It's okay to cry. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not trying to devalue tears because they have a 
real good place, right? Mm-hmm. But they're more like, oh shit, I gotta, I gotta double down. I gotta double down. So, is there an element in your URI experience and your, you know, college football experience? I mean, think about the hours you're in the weight room. Think about the hours you're on the field getting your head bashed in, trying to get that extra yard or block that extra block. Did they see that and did they want a piece of that? What's going on between the discipline of a of an athlete and the appreciation by someone who's looking to employ them? I'd love to break that down. I, I think it's pretty simple. It's structure, it's dependability, and it's accountability. Those are the three things that I think with athletes, they understand how to thrive in structure, which means they also understand pecking orders as well. Here's the boss. Here's the group leader. Here are the people that I report to. So you understand that, you know, if you're a football player, you have a position coach. You also have an offensive coordinator, but you also have a head coach as well. And then there are the people that hire the head coach once you get sort of smart to the quote unquote business of sports. You know, dependability is the whole be on time, right? But Tom Coughlin rule, you know, they would say, oh, if you're not five, 15 minutes ahead, or if you're not 15 minutes uh, early, then you're not running on Coughlin time. That's been exaggerated over the years, but I think we understand the general premise and, you know, uh, people that are accountable, athletes are held accountable. And that's the, you know, that's the hard part of youth sports, I think, is we're, we're balancing accountability and structure and you got to teach some of the coaches to talk to the kids the right way about that you know Vic Lapkowitz could stand there in 1987 and yell at us and call us a bunch of Jerobies or whatever because that was kind of coaching back then where it was all tough love and it was you know you don't need a water break and all that ridiculous stuff that now we know scientifically was bunk you know even 40 years ago but, but that said, I think with athletes, they understand, and, and I, you also make a really good point on the, the, the coaching part of it, because you got to understand when you're in business, you're going to deal with some emotional people and the, uh, you know, the closer to the top, the closer to the CEO that you get to, sometimes those people are irrationally emotional because there's a lot on the line for them. And you got to understand how to balance that. It's like being able to, it's like, it's like, you know, me missing a blitz pickup and getting yelled at coming off the field in the first quarter, but making sure when I see it again in the third quarter, I pick it up. We score a touchdown. I get a pat on the butt from the coach after he yelled at me, you know, 40 minutes earlier or something like that. That's the, that is the benefit of having athletes within a business infrastructure. And I think, you know, those guys recognized it. And I think they also knew too, it was like, Hey, wait a minute, you know, this guy, he's got a little bit of college football credibility, we're looking for certain things in the way they were building their company at CBS at the time. And they thought, look, this guy's 21 and he's dumb enough or eager enough to drive from Rhode Island. Either one, we want to keep an eye on this guy because he's willing to do what it takes. When you think about all the different games that you've, you know, been in the broadcast booth for, what are some of the dynamics that you're looking for when you're watching a game? as you're reporting them. Right. Because some of the times I I watch TV and I'm like, Oh, I wish he, I don't want to hear that. And that's, there's not a lot of value in that. Right. (laughs) Why are they talking about that? What do you, what do you look for? What do you like to talk about when you're watching a game? uh, For, for me, like, especially if I'm calling a college football game, I like to see how coaches have layered their play structure, how they use personnel you know, one of the one of the great things about the Patriots to take it to a you know an NFL level is the way they found ways to use their personnel, whether they were completely stacked or loaded with guys like Randy Moss and others, or whether it was just Gronk and Edelman and maybe James White. You, you got a, a tiny slot receiver, a big tight end who both like to work the middle of the field, and a running back who was pretty good at catching the ball. And it didn't matter. They still figured out ways to get those guys open. That to me is the, the fascinating part of the game is how do they just take, you know, again, it's literally like chess. How do you just move one piece? You tighten a split on a wide receiver, but what does that do to creating confusion with a safety and springs Gronk open? And the next thing you know, it's a touchdown. That's the, that is the part of football that for me, 
I, I love and try to follow as I go along. And especially if I'm calling a game, I've got that knowledge going in where, you know, a play caller might give me the Iggy and say, Hey, here's what we got on the first 15, but here are a couple of things we're going to do off of it. And it also, because of building those relationships with the coaches, it can make me look smart on, on the telly as well, which is hard to do. What should coaches and kids, if they're watching professional sports, try and pick up on so that they can improve themselves? The way they interact with each other. I think it's, you know, when it comes to body language, you know, the way you react after a play, but how does the sideline react after a positive play? How do they react after a negative play? How do teammates sort of interact with each other? You know, when you see a guy that's on the ground, you can tell the severity of an injury based on the way teammates react. And mm. if it's a really bad one, you will see certain guys take the helmet off, grab hands and start praying for someone. You know, you can see, I think a lot, if you just watch a, a sideline and, and you're almost not watching the game, but you're watching the interaction, whether it's between coaches, coach to player, when do they, you know, put the foot down and, you know, we've seen Bill Belichick go over to the bench and, and, you know, call the defense a bunch of punks at one point in time. I mean, what got him to that point? And I bet if you looked at the sideline, just a sideline copy of every game that season and how many times he went over there or grabbed somebody and told them something coming off the field, but to get him to the point in that 09 season to call them a bunch of punks because they were dancing with a big lead it, that we could learn a lot. I would say by the sideline interaction. And I'm, I'm fascinated by that because it's, if you watch closely, it's more than just guys that are patting each other on the rear end and giving high fives. Yeah. I think there's a leadership code embedded in that behavior that is so valuable for young people to see and emulate when it's done right and so dangerous when it's done wrong. No question. It's one of the biggest, it's one of the biggest worries I would think in terms of, you know, the kids getting the message sent the wrong way, you know, look, I, I, Gary, I've said this and I really believe it. Those people that are really special you know, they go from place to place and they create a championship culture, right? For whatever people think about LeBron James, when LeBron James walks in the door of a building of a team that he's playing on, the expectations are automatically risen to championship level. And then that guy comes in and is the hardest worker. Right now, Tom Brady is doing the same thing in Tampa Bay. Look at what happened down there. And I know they added some weapons, but why are they different? Because there's one guy who is holding people accountable to the level of excellence. And there hasn't been anyone to do that. And that guy at 43 years old is still excellent at his job. But those characteristics, as you said, like it's a trait. Some people have it. Some people don't. It's okay. It doesn't make them bad people. It just means that there are some that are going to emerge for one reason for another. And normally it is connected to people being pretty good at something that they do. Yeah. And, having a genuine sense of caring and connection to the people around them that becomes larger than the individual. In contrast, though, it's really interesting. Uh, I, at a young age, became a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. I remember I grew up in Fall River, Mass. Uh, there was a Super Bowl party at my parents' house. You know, you can imagine – Lots of ashtrays back in the 70s, right? <laughs> Smoking yep. inside. Yep. Beer, booze. And uh, and I remember Terry Bradshaw and the crew were playing, and my parents said to me, who do you want to win tonight? And I love the yellow and black uniforms, the golden black uniforms. I was like, I want that team. And young kid, I became a Steelers fan. And then I cursed and or blessed my two boys to become Steelers fans growing up. I had the bedspread. I had the lamp. You know what I mean? I had the whole thing from Sears. Terrible town, baby. I, I loved it. And so we got into Antonio Brown until Antonio Brown became, you know, a bad guy. Mm -hmm. I don't know how else to say it, right? And so we threw out our bobbleheads. We, I was like, boys, we can't support Antonio Brown anymore because he's behaving poorly. He's treating people poorly. We don't want to be a part of him. Now, isn't it interesting that when Antonio Brown gets back to a guy like Tom Brady, all of a sudden he shuts up. Mm. 
all of a sudden he's actually uh, producing. Um, and, and I just saw the interaction with him on the weekend where you can see that having a strong leader can pull people in the right direction. I'm not surprised by, of all the systems in professional football right now, only a guy like Tom Brady could actually get production out of a guy like Antonio Brown. So there's hope, I guess, for all this as well. Well, and I think that it's also uh, it, it's worth noting that even under Tom Brady, Antonio Brown slipped up like this whole thing in New England blew up on him. And yep. and and you would think that if Brady wanted to be like, hey, man, I tried. Can't do it again. Sorry. It wasn't that Brady no. doubled down and got him a different kind of help. And I think Antonio Brown also got help for himself as well. And, right. you know, that that's that's another big part. Th that's where honestly, Gary, that's where I hope some of these athletes realize I need to speak up about this. Like if Antonio Brown can stay on the right path and do what he's doing, he can become someone who could say, Hey, listen, man, I had a great opportunity in what could have been a great spot. And I blew it and didn't think I'd get yet another chance in the NFL. And he did. And Brady was a part of it, but there was a process and a reason why that Brady either wanted to be a part of it or really does care about this teammate even though he played with him for one football game it's pretty admirable that that Brady would double down on that as well and that there's still people willing to give guys like Antonio Brown a chance because he finally did put in the right kind of work why do um fans and journalists find the um athlete controversies the star controversies so interesting from your industry's perspective you're an announcer you're a broadcaster you're a journalist is it easier or more fun or more titillating or do you get more eyeballs when you talk about the guy who did this wrong the dui the gun possession all that stuff how do we is it possible to change the context of the conversation i know that expression nobody cares about the cat that got lost and got saved doesn't make the front lines and we had the director of uh, Police Athletic League, the CEO of Police Athletic League, on one of our um, earlier shows. And he said, hey, something like uh, blood cells uh, in, in the headlines. And, and it's too much conversation around that. But, but look, you're, you're a journalist. Mm -hmm. You're in the know. You're in, you're in the working group. What's the perspective on that? Well, it's interesting because, uh, look, as a talk show host, I have to wear different hats. If there's breaking news, then I do have to have journalistic chops. Um, but a, a lot of times I am a discussion leader. I think we're sort of getting away from the sort of breakdowns that we used to have, like when, you know, Mo Vaughn would come into Providence and go to dens of iniquity. You know, I don't, I, I think we're beyond investigative journalism on stuff like that because as I hold up a phone to you, this has now become some people think because they have a phone and a camera, they're journalists and all they're doing is shooting video of a story, but not providing context of a story. I think we have a lot of misguided people out there when it comes to what journalism is. I mean, you know, I can turn on one TV channel or another TV channel and know the kind of rhetoric I'm going to get based on politics. Sports really doesn't go down that road. However, I think because of the money involved, whenever athletes do screw up or their importance to the team, that's why those are the splashy headlines. And the other thing too is, you know, back in the day when people would have an issue like this in the eighties, you might read about it in the newspaper. You might hear about it on the six o'clock news, but you know, by the time breaking news hits at one o'clock, it's old by 2 PM. We're a faster news cycle. So these things get talked about and it's hot. And then there's the impact on the team. So you have to describe the why there's the impact on the team. It's the player did this. So you're constantly harping on he got a DUI on December 27th. And now here on January 4th, he's been indefinitely suspended and might miss a playoff game. You got to provide the context of all that. So it feels like it stays out there much longer. I just think a lot of it is 
the way we consume information right now, how readily accessible it is to us. And sometimes those stories go quick and sometimes they don't. And the longer they drag out, the more we think we're hearing about a DUI that happened with a player two months ago that ended up putting him on the shelf. It feels like you're talking about it, but in reality, you're just kind of resetting the facts along the way. As this professional spectator that you are, what's your hope for professional sports and what's the relationship between your hope and youth sports? Help me connect those two. You want professional sports to do what, Andy? What do you want it to become? Where do you want it to go? And and how does it relate to the kids who are coming up and aspire to either be as good as or want to walk in the shadow of where you want sports to go? I want to know that eventually pro sports can get to a point to where if you've made it to that level, if you're that blessed athletically and you've put in the work, that um, – that you have the ability to do whatever you want after that is over with. Now, if you're in the league for a year or two, you're only going to make a certain amount of money. But I think for a lot of these guys, if we're just going to be real about it, um, some of them have been shoved through an AAU system and they've missed class and they've missed out on life lessons. Some kids get into the NFL because they're already in hock because of a family situation. What I hope is that we get to a point to where if you spend some significant time playing professional sports, that you know you're going to be okay. You're not going to be like these players of the 70s right now who are fighting with the NFL just to get some basic medical care. And back in a time where the game was much more barbaric and we didn't have the technology to understand what it was doing to our brains and how it was affecting us. Gary, that's the other thing. Education continue to provide education to kids to go to college because the majority of the kids that play college sports don't go to the next level. But we also need some practical education at those NFL levels. If I can, you know, my my former broadcast partner, Scott Zolak, told me the story that, you know, he's sitting in a room full of guys and they're talking to the, the players about the 401k plan, which as a CEO, you'll keel over when you hear the NFL doubles what you put in. Wow. So I that's mean, a nice, so, that's a nice match, right? So you, you put in 14, they're giving you 28, something nice. like that. And there's a pension and, and guys were walking out of that room in 1991 saying, man, I ain't giving the man my money. I need this, that, or the other. What they need to do is truly educate these guys, at least on the basics of money so that they can take care of what they get. And the trickle down is, is if that happens at that level, then kids have more than just the hope of, hey, if I make it, you know, if you're a great athlete, you can get shoved to the moon and make a ton of money, but you don't know what to do with it when you're there. You don't trust people. You don't have solid people around you. You know, I'd love to know that a kid who says, hey, you know what? I love basketball, but I think I love baseball more. And it's an African-American kid. Is there going to be opportunities in a sport that has been very much either guys coming in from other countries or very white? And that's really for me is to know that if you're a kid now and you make it, so to speak, that you really have made it and you, and, and your, that really is your life's work. Sure. I mean, for, for LeBron James, his life's work came due at 18 years old. Some people don't have it until they're in their fifties or sixties where you really hit and that's your life's work and that's your journey. And LeBron is so big, he can take care of himself. But what about the guy who comes out a year too early and is a late first round pick and bounces around the league? And the next thing you know, he's got two kids in two different cities with a house he can't pay for. There's got to be people overseeing that, just like we have coaches at the youth level level trying to oversee kids and teach them the right way and talk to them the right way and coach them the right way to where it's impactful. We need to make different kinds of impacts at the pro level with some of these guys to save them from themselves and develop an infrastructure that will help the kids who fall through the cracks and don't get that kind of nurturing as they grow up. Let me throw another hot potato at you. Sure. Take that band of pros, now go down a level. Okay, let's talk about college ball. Mm -hmm. I have been under the belief that the college system is an amateur 
system for professional athletics. It's the feeder, right? Very. And this almost uh, laughable denial by some of these large college programs that are generating hundreds of millions of dollars. And, you know, you hear, oh, well, the kid's getting a free education. Okay. That's worth, you know, 14 grand to 18 grand to 21 grand, you know, maybe 70 grand a year now on a retail level, you generated $150 million off of the football and basketball team. The, the idea that some of these kids are actually pros, right? And they're not allowed to unionize. They're not allowed to get agents. I know it's starting to shift, starting to change, but I think there needs to be, in my opinion, some sort of a reset with what's going on with college athletics as it relates to the money in the game and the feeding system into these professional teams. It feels, it feels disingenuous to me for some of these schools to behave as if they're really not businesses. Yeah, they're, they're businesses. And I think that, you know, we, we now know that the curtain has been completely open and we understand what the NCAA is really all about. So it's interesting because to your point, when it comes to, the NBA and the National Football League, there's no question. The, 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 those sports are the two biggest in the NCAA world in football and, and basketball. They generate the most revenue, but because of the way the model has been set up, you have to feed those beasts because they feed everyone else. So when you think about Alabama football, right? And you think about all of the Title IX sports and all of the gender equity sports that we have to have. If you think of it like a businessman, there's I'm sure there's Gary Goldberg, the parent, where it's the whole I want as many opportunities for kids as possible. And then there's the businessman where you look at this and go, what the hell are we doing here? This budget doesn't balance whatsoever because you've got to have these other sports for all of the reasons that have already been noted. So if Alabama football doesn't produce an $80 million profit or whatever ridiculous number it was because they're mm -hmm. riding the roll tide right now because they're a great football team, all of these other kids get the opportunity to have their spot and not have a businessman of an AD come in and say, here's every reason why we should cut every one of these sports. So I look at it and say, I don't feel as bad for those kids in the non-revenue sports, but don't close the door on them making money. If they can do trick shots on YouTube, like the old UCF kicker did before they pulled the plug on him, by God, go do it. Find a way to go make the money, put some rules and structure in place and let them go. But for those, you know, but for the, for a, a Jalen hurts or a Tua Tagovailoa, if that kid is helping them, you know, really raise the revenue that is helping to feed the beast and that kid gets a cut of Jersey sales where other kids don't, I don't think that's the worst thing in the world, given the way the either. system is set up, but yeah, you can't either. say that because we're in a world where everything's going to be even Steven when it isn't even Steven. And it's, it's a, it's a, it is a true hot potato for the NCAA to steal your line from earlier. Yeah. And it's complicated. So Andy, let me ask you a question that I, I love to ask all my guests. You are, are you're going to be a unique uh, participant to this query. You've played a lot of games. You were an athlete. You've watched a lot of games mm -hmm. as a broadcast journalist. What do you think you've gained more from the wins or the losses, Andy? Oh my God, the losses by far because you're so certain of it. Oh, the, completely. Look, the 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 win is the goal, and when you get to the goal especially when you're in an environment where you have a game the next week, you don't, you don't, you don't, you never celebrate winning as you never celebrate the wins as hard as you take the losses. I'm a big believer in that. Or, and maybe it's different strokes for different folks. I know for me, the losses are what stick with me. The losses are what taught me, but for me, it's coming out of something with a lesson every time. Uh, you know, I'll forget about a win, but I'll always remember the tough loss. So for me, it's it's not even a question. It's the losses. And, and for me, it's, you know, the people you kind of meet along the way. You know, I, I've also become someone, and especially at an early age, where I had a couple coaches in college that I weren't cross with, but 
their style of coaching just I thought they were idiots, quite honestly. So I didn't respect them. So I was never going to listen to them anyway. That's a, a character flaw on my part. But, um, you know, I've also learned what not to do from people as well. You can learn how not to coach someone if you're coached poorly or in a way that you don't like. And for me, I have always tried to everything I get into, I try to pull something out of that can hopefully make me better. And I was even thinking like that back then. I just wasn't polished about it. Well, you're very honest in that, particularly the the piece about the flaw, because, um, you know, I feel the same way about me when I, if somebody rubs me the wrong way, sometimes I find a quick way to divorce myself from the situation. And as opposed to leaning into the discomfort and trying to solve it or, or get to a better place, Andy, it's been a great conversation. You're an exciting guy to talk to. I, I got to be honest with you. We'd love to have you back and, and keep in touch with you, particularly maybe post Super Bowl or as, you know, different sports come in. And, and I know you've got some exciting announcements coming up. If they want to, if people want to get a hold of you or, or follow you on social media, where should they go, Andy? I'm super easy. I'm on Twitter at the real Gresh, G R E S H. Same on Instagram as well at the real Gresh. And yes, I had to do that because there are plenty of imposters out there and people with the funny different social handles and things like that. So that's where you can get a hold of me. And uh, yeah, I'm hoping. Uh, I am hoping to be able to, uh, in the words of Cosmo Kramer and Seinfeld, let the cat out of the bag at some point here soon. But um, I admit this is the most amount of work, Gary, that I've done in about a week and a half. So it's been it's been a pleasure. Well, I know there's a lot of people waiting to hear where you're going and there's You've got a lot of fans. One last piece of information, because we got to clear the air on this. I've got my sound engineer, Max McVeigh here, and he did some pre-show research on you. According to Wikipedia, you ate nine large pizzas at Uncle Tony's. Now, for people who don't know Rhode Island, <clears throat> Squad Locker, our company, and on the whistle, which is broadcasted high atop the Squad Locker headquarters here on the second floor on Bald Hill Road in Warwick, is 100 yards from Uncle Tony's Pizza. And in 2015, I bought the building that Squad Locker is now in, and I did our closing negotiation at Uncle Tony's Pizza. So when I heard that you hold a record of eating nine pizzas at Uncle Tony's Pizza, and by the way, for anybody out in the Midwest, You've got your deep dish pizza, fine. And then, you know, your jerks in New York, you get your thin crust, fine. Uncle Tony's pizza is like, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like a, it's almost like a cake. It's like thick. It's got extra cheese. How the hell did you eat nine pizzas? And did you eat nine pizzas? Oh, well, that's one of those. Don't believe let the everything. Re- let the record those, be clear. Yeah. That's one of those. Don't believe everything you read on the internet. And um, my boys and I actually had a lot of fun with this. So, when I was working in Boston at the sports hub, I think it was 2013. It was right after the Bruins had won the cup and the hub was really rolling. Someone pointed out to me that my Wikipedia page had been vandalized. Now, for those who know my friend Scott Zolak, all of a sudden I'm, you know, in the middle of doing a live read or something. And you, all of a sudden you hear the, <laughs> and he's trying to hold it in. I'm looking at him and he goes, he goes, we're going to read this on the air. Someone had gone on there and vandalized it in a pretty funny way. There was one person who claimed that I was uh, the champion of a underground semi-professional sumo wrestling league based out of Warwick. And my name was Fat Eddie. So my then like eight-year-old, who's now 16, thought that was the funniest thing he had ever heard. So he called me fat Eddie for probably two or three years. And now he's just shrunken it to Ed. So my older boy uses it as well. And there has been some really funny stuff on there. They had something about, uh, you know, eating tacos and stuff like that. But there were a couple that were rip roaring funny. Oh, uh, I learned Mandarin to order easier at Chinese restaurants at the Kowloon. Like that pops me. That was great. Even Andy Wong over the Kowloon was like, that is fantastic, dude. So it's listen, it, you know what? It, I, what 34 year old me would have reacted very different than 44 or 46 year old me now. So I look at that and laugh. Like if my boys come to me and they're like, this is great. 
then I know to have fun with it because there will be other people out there who will find the fun in the hate that comes my way. For those of you interested, go to Wikipedia, look up Andy Gresh. There's a couple more cute little funny things about horticultural societies in there right now. I don't know if that's been updated or not, but no. you're you're very big on horticultural societies as that well. That is that is my buddy uh, who for real now. Okay, this is this is no BS. Okay, he is uh, Lord Stephen Gaspar is the guy who put that on there. He is he bought property in Scotland, I think it is so that he could officially get the title of Lord added to his name. So he wants to be referred to as Lord Stephen now because I don't know what kind of horticulture he was into the night he bought some land overseas, but nevertheless, it gets him to officially be a Lord. So I, I was looking into it. I got to say, I thought that was pretty interesting. You know, I'll never be regal enough to be a Lord, but to still be able to explain to people why the name should be attached to you cracks me up. Andy, never say never. I'd like this conversation to be a what you can do. That's right. And maybe next time when you're on with us, we'll call you Lord Andy. There we go, friend. Hey, this has really been an awesome discussion, and it's great what you do and getting people to, you know, talk about youth sports because, you know, as you mentioned, the whole can do versus can't do, it's easy to find the flaws in anything. But the people who are really doing impactful work and even all the way up through the high school level as well, because, you know, that's still youth sports because there are going to be very few kids that play high school football that are ultimately going to go on to college. So you hope the impact's been made in their life and good on you for, you know, spotlighting and highlighting some of the Willie Edwards of the world that are out there because there are a lot of them. Thanks, Andy. And if you're listening to the show and it's making you think about a coach that you had in high school or college or even something younger and that coach had an impact in your life, do your coach a favor and do yourself a favor. Pick up the phone, reach out and say hi to coach because coach wants to hear from you. Andy, always uh, great reaching out to you and talking to you. I really enjoyed our conversation and uh, stick with us on onthewhistle.com. Thanks, buddy. On the Whistle is powered by Squad Locker. Squad Locker is your one-stop shop for customized team apparel delivered right to your front door. To learn more, visit squadlocker.com.